Last month, researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory announced the first controlled fusion reaction, a fusion reaction that actually created power or heat or whatever it is. It's way too early in the process, but it certainly seems like a step toward commercial fusion energy. And it reminded us of another moment when scientists at the University of Utah told the world they had achieved a sustained nuclear fusion reaction at room temperature. This came to be known as cold fusion, and as you probably know, it didn't turn out well. For the scientists who did the experiment, for the reputation of the University of Utah, or for the promise, really, of clean energy. Today in Radio West, we're revisiting the story of cold fusion. Join us after this. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. Imagine if you knew something, something big, that had the possibility to change everything, to drastically alter the way human beings live their lives. It was a secret, this thing you knew, but it was about to get out, and when it did, you knew it was going to be hard to contain. What would you do? Well, it's sort of the scenario for officials at the University of Utah in 1989. Two chemists at the school, Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman, believed they had achieved in a laboratory setting a sustained nuclear fusion reaction and that the energy created by this process could be harnessed and and it could be sold. And maybe this is unfair, but they kind of freaked out, these officials. They wanted to control the news. They wanted to get credit and the money for the university and the state. Rod Decker was a TV reporter who covered the story of cold fusion when it broke here. And he started to see the different motives that were driving the story. They honestly believed that this was the most important discovery since the invention of fire. And they wanted credit for it. We did it. I think there was a little paranoia. I think there was a little of... We are, after all, the provincial boys. We're not the big time. Maybe some slicker will come in and steal this from us. Or maybe we won't get the credit, we won't get the financial benefit, which we deserve. So they believed that they needed to act quickly and decisively. Good afternoon. I'm Jim Brophy. I am Vice President for Research at the University of Utah, and it is my pleasure to welcome all of you to the campus of the University of Utah to share with us this exciting scientific announcement. They violated normal scientific proceedings to announce this at a news conference. This university prides itself, whether it be in creative writing or dance or chemistry or genetics or artificial organs, in a long tradition of intellectual freedom intellectual excitement, and a willingness to try new ways to solve old problems. This announcement today... They then raised money as fast as they could to have a war chest, to keep this to themselves and to develop it here, make sure it was the University of Utah and Utah, that everyone understood that that's who was doing this. This wasn't something that was done in one of the big centers. Basically, we've established a sustained nuclear fusion reaction by means, uh, by means which are considerably simpler uh, than conventional techniques. Uh, deuterium, which is a component of heavy water, is driven into a metal rod. And they were suspicious of what might happen to them and worried, and they were determined to make sure that they took full advantage of this opportunity.
So university leaders and some state politicians borrowed a private plane. They flew to St. George, where the governor had a condominium and was down there on vacation. They trooped out onto the golf course where he was playing around, and they said, look what we've got. He left quickly with them in the plane, flew back to Salt Lake City, called a special session of the state legislature. There, with only three dissenting votes, they voted $5 million to promote cold fusion. They believed this was a Utah opportunity, and this would be something that would use human knowledge and science to help the lot of mankind. Utah would be an historical benefactor. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Of course, you know how the story turned out. Whatever it was that was happening in that glass jar these scientists showed the world, it wasn't fusion. And because it was difficult to replicate, because the numbers didn't really add up, because of a lot of things, it fell apart. And it ended up humiliating the state, the university, and really changing the lives of Pons and Fleischmann. Today in the program, we're talking about this moment in time. Our angle, our peg for the show was the announcement last month from researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California that they had achieved the first controlled fusion reaction to produce more energy than it took to start it. Now, just to be really clear, that experiment had pretty much nothing, nothing at all to do with the cold fusion claims of Pons and Fleischmann. It just got us thinking. Here's Rod Decker again. It was a huge claim. It could have been an enormous thing, but it turned out to be phony, not to be true. And it was a case where the University of Utah tried very hard to get into the big time. Chase Peterson, the president of the university, was very ambitious for the institution. He had been spokesperson for Barney Clark and the Artificial Heart. He charmed the national press. It was one of the things that helped him become president here. Everyone knew he was such a fine public spokesman and he could handle uh, public attention. He wanted to make the University of Utah in the first rank of American universities. He was determined to be equal to the occasion. There is a tide in human events which, if taken on the flood, leads on to fortune. And he was not going to to shirk or to play things small. I remember talking to him. I asked him, uh, you surely aren't playing this careful and close to the vest. And he he said, no, no. And he made a a gesture with his hands like somebody playing cards careful. And he Mm. said, no, this is an opportunity. I'm going to take it. He wanted the University of Utah to receive credit and attention, and he was determined to take whatever risks and do whatever he could to make that happen. Most of the world uh, came to learn about cold fusion at this press conference, March 23, 1989. Martin Fleischmann has described it as a, as a zoo. That was something that he remembered about it. What do you remember about that press okay, conference? Okay. It, it was – he wasn't used to press conferences. This right. was just an ordinary press conference. <laughs> it wasn't a zoo. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was held at, uh, held in front of the park building on the plaza there, and uh, they explained it. But I didn't understand neither how, how important it was hmm. nor what exactly was going on. Yeah. Uh, I sort of understood uh, after they explained it. But uh, And I remember I stood next to uh, the vice president for research. His name was James Brophy. He was a physicist. Hmm. And I looked at him and said, do you think it might be true? And he said, I know it's true. And they said it was very important, and I believed it was very important. Mm. But it took me a while yeah. to understand what the claim was and what uh, and how important it was. How did you react to once it became clear that this this could be a big deal? This could be the answer to the to the world's energy problems. Uh, like, how did you react to it? Like, as a person. But then also as the reporter, like how were you reacting to this news that was coming out? 
once I got my feet on the ground, the, mm-hmm. uh, I went to the original news conference, and then the next day I thought, this, this may be a pretty big story. So I hustled up to the U and ran around and, and talked to people and, and took pictures of I – th- I think the story had pictures of the building in which the, the thing was supposed to have happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was running around doing that, and uh, I, I had a, a friend in the – his name was Solomon – in the physics department, and I called him, and he he didn't think it was – he wasn't going to say it's balderdash, but it was clear he didn't believe it. And from then on, I, I was skeptical from beginning to end, not – I thought maybe it's true and maybe mm-hmm. it isn't. Chase Peterson said there's a very small chance that we're wrong. Nobody den- denied that it was important. Chase Peterson said there's a small chance that we're wrong. If this is right, he said – this is like the invention of fire. Everyone agreed. It was as, as, the, as the man said to the Christian missionary, interesting if true. Energy was more important then than it is now. Hmm. The energy crisis seemed rather like, uh, say, global warming does now or climate change. It seemed like a, like a fundamental threat to our civilization. Hmm. And suddenly here it was solved. So it's, it's, it was a very important thing. And everybody agreed on that. People just didn't agree whether it was true. Will you remind people what it was they were claiming was going on? Like how how cold fusion worked? Do you remember? Like instead of splitting atoms, the idea is they're fusing them. Okay. Like, what they – what fusion is what powers a hydrogen bomb. Yeah. What powers the sun. Boom. Okay. Yeah. They claim to do this. They put a palladium rod in a bath of heavy water. Heavy water has a more hydrogen, heavier hydrogen than regular water. Yeah. Then they ran through electrolysis where you run an electric current through the bath. And the idea was it's established that when you run a current through water, it divides into oxygen and hydrogen, its parts. But the theory was that the hydrogen then went into the palladium, and palladium's shaped like a lattice, and hydrogen would go into the uh, the spaces in the lattice, but it would be squeezed together mm. such that the hydrogen atoms would fuse into helium. But instead of a great big boom like a hydrogen bomb, only a few at a time would fuse. So it produced heat. It made the water boil eventually, but it produced it gently. And you could take the boiling water and put it under a, an electric generator, and voila, the energy crisis was solved. But scientists tried to replicate it, as yeah. scientists do, and some did. Within a few days, uh, two scientists in Hungary said, yes, we did it, and it's true. There was a guy at Stanford named Huggins. There was a, the, uh, a Texas A&M, Minnesota. They all came through saying, yes, we've done it. It works. Now, they didn't do it. None of them did it exactly the way that Pons and Fleischmann did it. Pons and Fleischmann didn't give enough details for someone to set it up exactly the same. They did it in various different ways, but they said, yes, it it works. So we thought, well, maybe Maybe it's true. Yeah, maybe it's true. Do you want to talk about your conversation with Nate Lewis at Caltech? Because he said that all of the schools, (laughs) this was sort of the sentiment. Yeah, yeah, he, he, uh, MIT said no, and Caltech said no. But uh, no, we hadn't been able to replicate. Yeah, 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 they tried. And and the 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 believers said, well, just that they can't do it doesn't show it can't be done. Right. Uh, And I asked Nate Lewis. He said, no, it's not true. He was a he's a young professor at, at Caltech. And I said to him, uh, uh, it's been replicated. He said, it's only been replicated by schools with good football teams. Right. He was quite certain that it, was, that it wasn't true. Nobody, I don't think anybody knew for sure. The theory says that if it happened, there should be certain things. There mm-hmm. should be heat. Yeah. There should be uh, radiation, and not just radiation. There was... Uh, a specific measure, and I can't remember the number. It might have been 2.2 million electron volts. Mm. That's what I remember, but that might be wrong. A particle comes out like that, and you can measure that particle, and that's signature. It's only if if hydrogen's fusing into helium that you see that particle. And people claimed to have seen the particle, but mostly they couldn't see it. Uh, and, and so there were various measures, 
and they weren't all there. And Pons and Fleischmann didn't claim. They said, we are trying to make a working bottle. And they said this for maybe a year. I think that they couldn't replicate it. And they didn't say we can't replicate it. They said, we're trying to make a working model. The Department of Energy got a very prestigious team and sent them out here. And Pons and Fleischmann couldn't show them cold fusion. That was after several months of, of back and forth on it. Back to um, what what Nate Lewis was getting at by the football team's uh, remark. What did it? What was the impact of the fact that a story like this was coming out of out of Utah or the University of Utah, which didn't rise to the same level, obviously, as an MIT yeah. or as a Caltech? Pons and especially Fleischmann were scientists of good reputation. Everybody believed that. Mm. And everybody took it seriously to begin with. All over, people thought this was enormously important, and they tried to see whether it was true. Utah was surprising, hmm. but nobody said, it's Utah, therefore it's nothing. Hmm. After it went on for a while, and the the proponents said, no, it's true, and the, 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 the best people or the, the couldn't make it work – then, then it became a little acrimonious uh, and a little, a little sharp in the exchange. But not, it was always polite scientists. Mm. Mm. When did you sense – I won't say blood in the water. That's not the right way to say it. But when did you sense that the story was starting to go sour? Well, it went sour for a long time. But, yeah. but it sounds as if uh, when you say go sour, from the beginning – a lot of people said it's probably not true. Pons and Fleischmann and Chase Peterson, they said, no, it's true. There was a cleavage, but it was a year mm-hmm. before finally you could say it just isn't going to work. And in that time, I remember I did a story and Chase Peterson loved it. Um, I summed up all the the evidence that was coming in against it, this this person, this person. So I said, and now the empire has struck back. And Chase Peterson thought he he thought that this was just a matter of the scientific establishment. It's 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 uh, ways and beliefs were being overturned, and it's offering what will you expect resistance, but we will be vindicated in the end. And it was a year at least before it was clear they weren't going to be vindicated in the end. How much of this, the fact that this story played out the way it did, had to do with a kind of personal ambition of Chase Peterson? Maybe uh, institutional ambition. In, in, okay, institutional, institutional ambition. Okay, ambition. So you won't say it's personal, but yeah. I, I guess the question is how much, uh, how much of that. I, I won't use the word greed, but that institutional ambition, let's put it that way. How much of that was driving the fact that Pons and Fleischmann couldn't be transparent about some of the details of these experiments that could get a vetting from other labs, from other scientists? How much was of that was driving what became this kind okay. of phony process? Here's what I think. I was not privy to their psyches and nor to their to their private meetings. Yeah. Okay, here's what I think happened. Pons and Fleischmann thought maybe this will work. They did it, and uh, they saw heat coming that they couldn't explain other than by fusion, and that seemed to be what had happened. They went to the university, and they said, we believe we've made a really big discovery. Then it got caught up in institutional ambition. Now, there was a researcher named Stephen Jones at Brigham Young University who also had done fusion, cold fusion. His was very cold, minus 237 degrees or what, near abso- as near absolute zero as he could get. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it did not produce usable amounts of energy, nor would it ever. It was an interesting piece of science, it, though it turned out also not to be true. The University of Utah and Brigham Young made a deal that they would announce it together. Then the university, once they got look, looking at this, they said, we need the credit. So they went ahead on their own in violation of the deal they'd made with Brigham Young University. And they announced it. And my guess is what it was, was Pons and Fleischmann 
really believed they had it. They persuaded uh, James Brophy, the physicist, and, and Chase Peterson, who was a medical doctor, and they caught it up in, in institutional ambition. This is our chance. This is, this is the opportunity of, a, of, of, of many lifetimes. And they were going to be equal to the occasion. They ran with it. We'll have a news conference. We'll go to the, to the government and get money. We'll do everything we can to ride this horse as hard as possible to put the University of Utah among the forefront of national institutions. And that's what happened. And once it got caught up, Pons and Fleischmann had said they did this. And so they had to say, we believe we can do it again. But they didn't say it that way. They said, we did it. And we are confident that we will do it again. We will have a working hmm. model. We will prove this. And this went on for a while, and it was, a, it was for, for Pons, I don't know Fleischmann, for Pons it, was, it, it ended up something of a personal tragedy in the end. He, he became angry and reclusive. I guess he got over it, but he became angry and reclusive, and, and it was hard on him. Do you think that cold fusion got a fair hearing. Oh, it's got much more than a fair hearing. Uh, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe, in the scientific community mm. trying to look at it. And they looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, uh, and it, it turned out not to be true. But there are still people who believe it. But I don't believe it anyway. So looking back now over the story, um, you mentioned institutional ambition. What what, what was that story about? Uh, uh, hubris, naivete, incompetence, good intentions that went badly? What? Chase Peterson, even after it fell apart, did not apologize. He believed that he had here a chance, and he he rode the chance as hard as he could, and it turned out not to work. But the impression one got from him, uh, that I did, was that if he had it to do over again, he'd still ride the chance as hard as he could. This was an opportunity for the University of Utah to make a huge success, and he wanted to do it. He thought, while this was in its first flush, uh, Brophy received more than 200 inquiries from uh, private entrepreneurs who said, listen, I'll put up some money. Let me in. They at least said, tell me about it, and maybe I'll put up some money. But they were, uh, as Chase Peterson said, we get, we get inquiries all the time of people who say, I'll roll the dice with you. He always knew that it was a chance, uh, but he thought it was a good chance, and he, he took it. Rod Decker. We're going to take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're revisiting the story of cold fusion that played out here in Utah some 34 years ago. What got us thinking about it was the announcement last month from researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California that they had achieved the first controlled fusion reaction. The two experiments, cold fusion and the one from Lawrence Livermore, they aren't remotely alike, not even close. But they both offered this exciting promise to change everything about the way we produce energy. We know how the cold fusion story ended. And that's what we're doing today on the program. We're telling this moment in Utah history. The now-retired reporter Rod Decker got us started with the story. But we also spoke this week with the filmmakers Clayton Brown and Monica Ross. They made a documentary about the Cold Fusion saga called The Believers. Their telling also begins with that first press conference in 1989 and the idea that Cold Fusion could change everything. 
Well, like Rod Decker says, at first, you know, it just probably seemed like another scientific announcement from the U, but the scope of it became pretty clear that this was almost miraculous in its possibility. You have this this concept of fusion, which is the unattainable, perfect energy source, and the way of going about it to that point and still has been with hot fusion, where it requires enormous amounts of energy. And then here come these two guys saying, oh no, we can do this at room temperature with off-the-shelf equipment, and it will basically solve all the energy problems on the earth. When you have that kind of announcement, it's just, it's sort of mind blowing. So you can see why it exploded, not only in the press, but just in the popular imagination. And part of it from the very beginning was the fact that it was a press conference and that that's not the way science is conducted. And so for the university to set this up as a press conference with that kind of hyperbole that it was going to solve all the problems of the world, that in itself made it something that the media flocked to. That was new. There's, there have been press conferences and announcements since then, but that was, that was fairly radical. And so that alone, with this enormous promise of what this research was going to mean to the world. Well, the two, both of that together made it headline news all across the United States. So as you show in the film, Martin Fleischman tells reporters that basically he had two regrets. Um, One is he wished he hadn't called it fusion. Um, We won't get into that point. I want to get to the second point he makes. He said the other regret he had was holding a press conference, holding a press conference that had, you know, before it had gone through, you know, the basic protocols of science, peer review process, a vetting process. Say something about that, the way they went about this, um, making this announcement in March of, of 1989, which Fleischman describes as, as a zoo. It's really a fascinating way this came out because, as you mentioned, the traditional way of working with science and you spend years trying to discredit what you think is true. You ask everyone you can think of, tell me why this is wrong. Tell me why it doesn't work. And only after years of surviving these attempts at, at sabotage does it emerge as, well, I guess this is true. And then they'll announce it. So what Pons and Fleischmann did was the exact opposite. They announced it as if it were a done deal before Mm. they allowed anyone else access to the information to test it. Soon after that, as we know, it, it kind of fell apart when the rest of the scientific community finally got a hold of it. After that happened, you get these conflicting narratives from Fleischmann who says, you know, we were... We were kind of forced into this by the university Mm -hmm. because they wanted the patents and they wanted, you know, to own the discovery and make money from it. So they had to keep it secret until the patents were accomplished. And then you have Chase Peterson, the president, saying, no, that's not really true. They wanted to do this. We didn't tell them one way or the other. Yes, the patent office was probably advising him what to do and he was getting pressures from this and that. And Martin may have thought that he was on a roller coaster that he couldn't get off of at this point. I just don't know. But it's unfortunate because no dean, no faculty member, no president, no janitor could ever tell you, an investigator in our biology department, that you must publish something you've done, or for that matter, we won't let you publish what you want to publish. That's academic freedom. I think probably both of those things are tangled up in a mix that we can never really sort out. But you hear Chase Peterson in the film very clearly saying, we want the patents. We want this money to come to the University of Utah. We want it to come to the state of Utah. And you can see the excitement of Fleischman uh, in that press conference. Where we, Monica and I would always say he's kind of holding court. You know, he's, 
He's clearly enjoying that moment. So I think both of those things are true. They both get tangled up and it, it really did become uh, a scientific mess. What did all of this reveal about the reaction from the media, from the public? Um, th- there's one of the people in the films who mentions the hysteria, the threats that would come to Martin Fleischman at the time that they – that you know this had the potential as this person says, to solve all of the world's problems. And when you get to that level, you see the craziness, he says, mm-hmm. that exists in this country. And all of that came out. Uh, Fleischman's wife you interviewed, she said it was a very strange time. Not real, I think, is how she put it. How do you describe mm-hmm. sort of the, the atmosphere of a moment like that? It went on for about three and a half months the jubilation. They were on Time Magazine, uh, Wall Street Journal, other reputable newspapers went along with the line that it was an incredible breakthrough, an answer to all the world's problems as far as energy. All of that played out in the media. And then they had, here was these two university professors one who had an outgoing personality, and that was Martin Fleischman, and the other who was a little more introverted, as they say about Stanley Pons. And he was a chemist and a chemistry professor, not a media celebrity. So suddenly they had paparazzi, is what Fleischman's wife calls it. And they they were jumping out at them and taking pictures of them. And their phones were ringing all, all, all night long with people from all over the world who wanted to interview them or get cold fusion information from them. The whole thing blew up their lives in a way that was enormously crazy. And then when other labs couldn't replicate it and started calling them incompetent Mm. and delusional and getting very personal, they crashed. And Stanley Pond's wife in an interview, and she's a scientist too, she was talking about their kids. Our daughter was in school at the time. She was 11, 12 years old. And some of the children that, oh, your dad's a fraud. Why did he do this to us? Why, why do we have uh, Utah smeared like this because of your dad? So we had a choice of uh, staying in America and not continuing on in science or leaving America and continuing on. It got incredibly personal to the fact where Stanley Pons took his family and left and went to France. He was scheduled to teach a class and the students showed up and there was no professor there. That's how quickly he left. And he must have left with a great deal of anger. Yeah. You know, it made their career. It made them celebrities and very famous. And then it ruined their careers. You explore the relationship between Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons in the, in the film. I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Edmund Storms, um, the physicist that you interviewed, talked about how without Stan, Martin was kind of half half a man. But Stan without Martin, was that was something else entirely, that Martin had provided the kind of creativity – uh, seems like the the charisma that seemed clear in the, those press conferences or in any of the interviews that you see with Martin Fleischman. He's a charming guy. The sparks, the craziness. Talk, talk a little bit about that relationship. What, what what was the give and take in that relationship? You do, I think, have a mentor mentee kind of relationship where the fireworks uh, and the the public face of this was clearly more Martin Fleischman. And Stanley Pons was was sort of seen as the guy in the background doing the grunt work. So there there was a, a certain dynamic there. They all seemed to indicate that Stanley Pons was not eager to get in front of the spotlight. He seemed nervous. His grad students described him as being terrified in front of the microphone. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a public speaker. He wasn't a public figure. So he clearly was motivated to make this announcement by what he thought, at least at first, was was a real reason to do it. I don't think you get out in front of that if you don't believe what you're doing. 
But because he seemed to be more of an introvert, I think he was the one that suffered from the backlash. As, as Chase Peterson said, they weren't prepared for the abuse that they got. Stan Pons, a soft-spoken, gentle person, went to a meeting down in Southern California. People got up and called and said, you're a fraud, you're a cheat, you're a liar. Well, he'd never heard words like that before, presenting at a conference of his, of his peers. So, no, they weren't prepared. I think it's interesting that whether or not they got this right, whether or not – and there seems to be some pretty strong opinions that they that they didn't or um, – although that, that is a, st- still a question that, that's sitting there. But whether or not they got this right, they, they both were deeply committed and had a – had a really had years of experience coming up to this. This is one of the things that you mention in 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 the film. They had been, I mean, one person told you that Fleischman had his first paper, um, a, a, you know, b- written about the one of the elements of of what became this um, this announcement in 1989 was from 1948. That they had been thinking about this for a long time, and it seems like in in some ways. The, the film makes a contribution to sort of redeem that part of the question, that they weren't just out to commit a fraud, that they were committed to this idea. Yes. And Fleischman, in our interview, that was towards the end of his life, he still believed yeah. that there was merit in their experiment. And, you know, it gets down to whether to call it fusion or not. And he regrets that because he thinks that it was that there was something there and it was worthy of study mm-hmm. uh, he went to his grave believing that he absolutely did that's monica long ross along with clayton brown their co-directors of the documentary the believers we'll take another break come back in a moment you're listening to radio west KUER is available via radio through a network of transmitters and translators across Utah. We are also available to you beyond the dial. Stream us on your computer, put us in your pocket with the KUER mobile app, subscribe to our podcasts, and listen to us at home on your smart speaker. Use our station finder for your nearest signal and explore more ways to stay connected to NPR Utah at KUER.org slash listen. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we've been talking about the story of cold fusion as it played out here in Utah in 1989. We have with us the filmmakers Clayton Brown and Monica Long Ross. They made a documentary about this story called The Believers. Let's talk about when the backlash comes. Um, Robert Park is an interesting um, Character you include him in 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 the film and also some of his really withering critiques. He doesn't believe it. Um, and one of the things he says is even sincere scientists. He's sort of damning them with this faint praise. He says even to some reporter. You have a clip of this. He says even sincere scientists believe in things like creationism and flying saucers and even the Chicago Cubs, who had not, of course, won a World Series by that point. Um, so he's funny, but he's also withering, and he's really. Let's talk a little bit about the way the, the how the backlash plays out and the critique that starts to come? What's the nature of, because it could be really nasty. Clayton, take that one. Thomas Guerin really does a good job of, of describing the way that the physicists kind of take back this narrative and, and bring it back into their court, as he says, the court of peer review, which is where it should have been the whole time. But there's this notion that these are chemists playing in a sandbox that they don't belong in. So there's always been kind of a historic competition or, or tension between the physics and the chemist community. <laughs> and the, the physicists used this in a way to kind of do a little bit of a smackdown and, and say, no, this is our turf. You've tried to come onto it not knowing what you're doing. 
and let us help you understand that you don't know what you're doing. And they, they essentially destroyed the notion as far as they were concerned once and for all, both to themselves, the scientific community, and then for the press. What Ed Storms is saying is, but something was still happening. Whether or not it was fusion, whether or not it was completely nuclear, or maybe there's a partial chemical thing going on, we don't know. Something happened, but by then it was too late. The public um, disgrace was so conclusive that it became shameful to talk about the process. You interviewed um, Thomas Guerin, the sociologist and science historian, and he said part of the compelling quality of the story, this particular story, was that this incredible discovery was coming from a place like Utah. These were not Nobel Prize winners. They weren't even at Harvard or MIT or Stanford. They were at Utah, which was part of the compelling quality, but then that also became part of the undoing. How could we trust Utah? If this were really true, why didn't MIT get there first? But the possibility that these guys who, you know, had something to drink, went up the canyon, talked about it, did something with a Rubbermaid, I mean, that story is just so amazing. And if it worked, it would be the greatest story ever told. If this announcement had come from Caltech or MIT or something like that, A, it would have been done differently, but B, just the initial reaction from the scientific community might have been to give it a bit more credibility. Whereas if there's suspicion about the experiment itself and it's coming from, you know, as he said, a place called Utah, then that's just another you know, another strike against it. So the cumulative strikes against this announcement just mounted up. And I think that was, that was one of them. The fact that these two were not well known, they were, you know, not uh, big shots in the scientific community. Hmm. So it was really just a credibility issue all the way around. The question you raise in the film also like what has been lost? Did not just did did cold fusion or that version of whatever you want to call it? Um, did it get a fair hearing? But but what has been lost? And you include in the the film a clip from a from a TV news report. A reporter is asking one of the grad students working on this Pons Fleischmann project. She says, you know, if this isn't actually fusion, but it's let's say it's some other chemical reaction. Did we lose? Who lost? Are you kidding? We've done science. We've got results that has, has stretched the imagination. We have got the public thinking in a very positive scientific way. Has anybody lost? Not a single person. If this goes absolutely bust, nobody's lost, especially not science. There was a temporary loss of perspective. But I kind of agree with that grad student that ultimately we all gained something. Hmm. Now we're thinking about science. Let's talk about the personal loss part that you explore. What happens to Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman? Uh, Martin Fleischman died a few years after, after the making of this film. We know that. But where, where, did, where did they end up? Well, Pons, as I understand it, he had family over in France. I, I think that he wanted to leave the United States to protect his family and to go on in science. He really felt shamed. And when you've been called by other scientists incompetent, that, that's got to wear on you. Um, but in 1995, something happened. And Martin Fleischmann says in the film, when we asked him, do you talk to Stanley? And he said, no, not since 1995. We don't talk about it. And the question is, why don't we talk about it? What would I say to him? How things... <laughs> what are you working on now? <laughs> are you continuing with the dreadful research? Hans went on to 
not give interviews and didn't want to talk about cold fusion. Um, so his career, uh, he still publishes some things, um, but his career was certainly derailed and his family moved. I, his children are probably fluent in French and their friendship was ruined. Martin was um, in his 60s, I think, when all this came down in 1989. So he went back home and, and taught at Southampton and then retired. But seeing him at the end of his life, he had so many regrets. And, and it was very sad when we got to that moment asking him about his relationship with Stanley. I think he valued their friendship. And I, I think he missed talking to Stanley. It was obviously there that there was a great deal of sadness. From Pond's End, who knows, because we, we couldn't talk to him. But certainly his life was completely upended because he was the chairman of the chemistry department at the University of Utah, plus teaching there. And suddenly he, he ran himself out of town, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because Chase Peterson still put money into this institute by August. He t- I think he tried to keep Stanley there, but... By September, when classes started, Stanley was gone. So there was a lot lost. For the individuals, the two individuals, there was a great deal of loss. Let me ask you finally, um, we don't want to give the impression that the announcement from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory last month is the same you know, in any way. It's you know, cold fusion from Pons and Fleischmann, but... Of course, there is a lot of talk and excitement that this first fusion reaction in a laboratory setting, you know, that's produced more energy than it took to actually start the reaction, that this is going to um, – I wonder if you think this is going to kind of rekindle an interest in cold fusion or a conversation about these kinds of possibilities. What do you, what do you think? Um, Monica, you first and then Clayton, I want to hear you on that too. The cold fusion people always said, as far as the hot fusion in, in, in relationship between the two, that um, we say we're 20 or 30 years out from a major discovery, and they say that too, which was true for many years, hot fusion. And hot fusion even made a, I think at ITIR, they were saying in, I don't know if it's 2012, 2013, that they were going to have a breakthrough and then it never came. So um, this idea of more energy out than in is something that they both have struggled with. Now, hot fusion is, especially what happened at Livermore, was a collaborative effort among many laboratories. It was very open, a kind of opposite of cold fusion. So whether, I I can't say whether um, the Livermore announcement is going to some of the older people who have been struggling with cold fusion for a long time, the researchers might say, well, you know, this is, you know, just an early announcement and we could make that. I, I don't know. There, It is interesting to read about where they've gone with LENR. And sometimes they call it, um, and I got to look at this, CANR, which is chemically assist- assisted nuclear reaction. And and it's interesting when you mentioned that one of uh, Martin's regrets, Martin Fleischmann's regrets, is that he called it fusion. There are researchers now who are saying maybe it's not fusion or it's a chemical, a chemical-like response that isn't fusion. So there is research going on whether there's going to be whether young people are going to go into the field and commit them. Uh, we have Eric Golub in our film, who was a high school student doing a, a an experiment. Um, last I heard from his father, and it's been years now, he said um, Eric was going into engineering, and no, he was he was giving up his cold fusion um, interests. So um, I don't know. You know, I think the the the, the final answer is Will Livermore and their announcement make more people, make them more interested. I don't think it'll ever go away because we all want cheap and abundant and environmentally friendly, safe 
power and that's what what the world needs so i think there's going to be interest will there be serious researchers who take over from the 81 year olds and 79 year olds i think i look up mcuvery he is in his 70s um all the ones that we know are are really aging now and they're still giving each other awards so where's the young people coming up and doing this so i don't know beyond that i don't know i think cold fusion as a concept is is so thoroughly discredited i don't think it will become a topic of of new research i think mm-hmm. also if it has if it hasn't been demonstrated by now that it could be feasible i i'm i'm skeptical that it ever could be but on the other hand i was reading um articles about you know the hot fusion announcement some of those scientists continue to say you know we're still decades away and one one of the participating scientists even said if ever i think mm-hmm. the amount of power required to get this a little result is so astonishingly high. They essentially have to replicate the conditions of the sun. I was talking to a friend of mine in 1989, wind power, solar power, geothermal, all these other renewable energies were kind of in their infancy. I think those very cheap, very easy ways of getting free power will eclipse uh the attempts of fusion i just, i don't think it's i think it's a a theoretical and a scientific holy grail that is becoming less and less practical and less and less needed to be honest so i think as more advances happen in wind power and solar power and and these other renewable things fusion will just become you know this this ivory tower scientific problem to solve that has less and less relevance and costs astonishing amounts of money. It's Clayton Brown. He's an associate professor of communications at Northwestern University, along with Monica Long-Ross. They're co-directors of the documentary The Believers. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.